This episode of the MedTalk podcast is brought to you by European Pharmaceutical Manufacturer, a publication covering the entire supply chain of pharmaceutical manufacturing. Subscribe now at epmmagazine.com. Hello and welcome to the MedTalk podcast. My name is Rhys Armstrong and I'll be your host for today's episode. We're joined today by a very special guest, Professor David Nutt, the current Edmund J. Safra Professor of Neuropsychopharmacology and the Director of the Neuropsychopharmacology Unit in the Division of Brain Sciences at Imperial College London. A psychiatrist and neurologist, throughout his career David has worked across a number of universities in the UK and the US focusing on areas of research such as alcohol addiction and other psychiatric disorders. He's been voted one of the most 100 most important figures in British science by the Times Eureka magazine, and he's been a prominent figure for discussing drug use, acting in a number of advisory positions to the UK government and the NHS. Recently, he joined the biotech company Awaken Life Sciences, which is looking into how psychedelic medicines such as ketamine, MDMA and other compounds can help treat addiction and other mental health conditions. David, thank you so much for joining me today on the episode. How are you? Oh, great. Uh, it's it's uh, exciting times for my kind of science. So it's a pleasure to be talking to you about it. Yeah, definitely. There's been a lot of, uh, lot of um, activity happening on, on your part. Just before we get into sort of discussing Awaken Life Sciences uh, and the company you've joined, I, I just want to get 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 a gauge on sort of when it was you started to gain an interest in how psychedelic medicines and, and other types of drugs can help treat, um, uh, you know, ad- addiction d- disorders and, uh, and mental health as well. Well, it's such it's, it's a very good example of what we call translational medicine. Uh, I when I started studying psychedelics, uh, I think we, we gave the first uh, dose to someone probably twelve years ago now. The intention was just to find out how they worked. You know, we knew what they did in the test tube. They, we knew they were serotonin, 5-HT2A agonists. But no one had actually worked out, using brain imaging, what that meant in the brain. And, of course, the reason for that was these drugs had been illegal for years. So, so we decided it was time. You know, I was old enough. If I didn't do it then, I'd probably be too old. So we, we set out to, t- to study the effect in the brain. And the effects were remarkable because... We thought they'd turn on the brain, but they didn't. They turned off parts of the brain. But interestingly, they turned off parts of the brain, which we then realized were the parts of the brain which drove conditions like depression and addiction. Uh, And so the trials we've done subsequently have actually been based on the fact that there is a brain signature of these drugs which predicts clinical efficacy and, and remarkably both for psilocybin and for MDMA, those brain signatures actually have really translated into a clinical effect. Yeah, so psilocybin is the, um, the psychedelic m- mushroom MDMA. Of, um, obviously, everyone, everyone knows, but um, just in, in, in terms of the work, the work you've done, um, can you can you explain how these compounds, such as ketamine and psilocybin, how have you worked compared to, say, something like antidepressants such as fluoxetine? Yes. Well, this is a topic that has been really central to our research over the last five years. 
when we when we did our first trial of psilocybin in resistant depression, and it, it, we were staggered by how effective it was. A single dose, a single psilocybin trip could lift depression in people who've been depressed for 20 years, who'd failed on up to 10 different antidepressants. And we thought about it, and we thought something's interesting here. Uh, why would these drugs work when traditional antidepressants like Prozac, fluoxetine, escitalopram haven't? And we came up with a theory. We came up with a theory that there are two ways of lifting depression. We know that the conventional antidepressants, they work quite slowly. They take between about six and 10 weeks to really work. And, and we theorized that they work in the limbic system, in the stress system of the brain, to dampen that down. And there's a huge amount of research showing that these drugs, traditional antidepressants, dampen down responses to stress. And we think that they work in depression. And other people think this, you know, it's not our idea. People like Kath Harmer in Oxford, Phil Cowan in Oxford, they have a theory that antidepressant drugs protect the stress centers from stress so the brain can heal. So depression is, is a, a disorder where stress has harmed the brain. You protect against the stress. The brain heals over six to ten weeks. Psychedelics work after a single dose. And they're working different. Uh, and we think they're working in the cortex. Why do we think that? Because the cortex is where the receptors, the 2A receptors are. The antidepressant drugs work in the limbic system where there are 1A receptors. So we're turning 1A, a different receptor, different function. Psychedelics in the cortex on the 2A receptor, they disrupt the the ruminations, the negative thinking of depression. We also now think they disrupt the ruminations and the craving for addiction. So they work in different parts of the brain. And our recent study where we've compared head-to-head -head psilocybin with acetalopram, was the clinical data were published in New England Journal of Medicine just recently. The main target was to, to do brain imaging to see if we could prove that these drugs work in different parts of the brain. And that paper is under review. Uh, I think I can say that we have found that. But we've got to wait for the referees to finally agree with us. Yeah, of course. Obviously, that um, that review process is, is is integral to the um to the life sciences industry. But in terms of your career, what have you found? Um, I, I guess from the responses of either the industry or government, um, society, what what how how welcoming are people into this area of research? Well, I can say a couple of things. Patients are very keen, especially the patients who haven't responded to the previous treatments. Yeah, of course. And they're actually very, they're powerfully, they're lobbying because we have people who have, had see, have seen their depression lifted by, by psilocybin, but then it's come back. And it's come back probably because it's been in their brain for, for decades. So it's almost like depression is the base state of their brain. And they say, why can't I have another dose? And I say, you can't have another dose because it's illegal. Uh, and I can only study you in a trial. And we don't have funding to do a trial in someone who's already had psilocybin. Uh, and they say, well, you know, why is it illegal? And I say, well, that's because in the 1960s, the American government thought LSD was fueling the anti-Vietnam War movement. So they banned LSD. They banned psilocybin because it's a similar chemical. And then the British government and all the other governments in the world that sign up to the UN conventions, they all ban them. And they've not reviewed that ban because, basically, because the, the drug laws are politically based. And I think for governments to review the ban, 
would would actually show to the world not only that that ban was ridiculous, but also highlight the fact that almost all drug laws are politically driven rather than um, health driven. So we are patients are lobbying strongly. Politicians are saying, "Well, we need more trials. We need you know they're just trying to, as always, they're trying to kick it into the long grass, drag their feet." But some countries have changed. Most of the Latin American countries now allow native psychedelic product called ayahuasca, which is a way of giving DMT to people. They allow that for both ceremonial use and also now for health use. In the Netherlands, the Netherlands, the Dutch were very clever. They they complied with the UN conventions, but they also um, worked out ways around them which, so they could both comply and get around them. And they, they kept the uh, magic mushroom truffle, the underground bit, legal. So now there are many... Um, places in the Netherlands where you can go and have uh, psilocybin experiences. So so there, there are still places in the world where you can do this, but mostly it's banned. And um, I find it very frustrating. You know, so in, here in the UK, you know, I have with my team discovered a what is a potentially a very important new treatment for depression. We should be celebrating it, not trying to stop people using it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I completely agree. Um Especially when, when given the um, the provision of mental health services in the UK is, is, is very lethargic and slow. It's um, it's very difficult to get you know that, that level of, of connection with a with a GP or um, a psychiatrist. Yes, it's interesting. We're um, so I'm talking to psychiatrists about this all the time, and it, it's it, it's kind of interesting that there seem they there are three groups of people in psychiatry. They're the ones that are older than me who who were actually around, not many of them left, who were around in the 1960s when these drugs were being used successfully before they got banned. They were very successful medicine. And they say, thank goodness you're bringing back something which we knew worked. And then there's the middle, the, you know, the psychiatrists in sort of 35 to 65 who were saying, well, we don't know anything about these drugs and we've been teaching how dangerous they are. And, you know, are you sure that they're not dangerous and we're not interested in them? And then there are the young psychiatrists who are saying, thank goodness, there's something new. Because what we, the drugs we are prescribing in psychiatry today are essentially derivatives. They're brothers and sisters of drugs which were invented. They weren't even invented. They were discovered by serendipity in the 1950s. So we've improved on their safety and their tolerability, but we haven't improved on their efficacy or their mechanism of action. So for young psychiatrists, these new approaches, psychedelics, MDMA, ketamine, they offer a, a, a whole new, you know, a new prospect of actually engaging with a new treatment that could, you know, can help patients where other treatments haven't. Yeah. Um, just going on to, I, I suppose, some of the legalities around, around these compounds, which, which you're studying, what, like, how, how restrictive would it be, say, if you, if you did... If the um, the data from the studies you're doing, you know, it was amazing and it showed sort of sort of new possibilities for treatments. What would then need to happen with with drug laws to make that possible as a treatment? Well, essentially, the the the, uh, uh, the regulations would have to change it, and they can change. It's not as if that these are set in stone. The, 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 oh, it's very easy, actually. The government because the government did it with medical cannabis. After saying it had no medical value for 50 years, then it became clear from other countries there was medical value. The government chief medical officer said, yeah, oh, yeah, it is a medicine. And she allowed medical cannabis. So you could, you just need to reschedule from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2. And then 
psilocybin, MDMA could be used. I mean, ketamine has a particular advantage. And one of the reasons we're working with ketamine now at uh, an Awaken is that ketamine has long been a medical drug. Of course, it was invented as an anesthetic and it was widely used. It was used in the Vietnam War. To, it was called the buddy drug. You know, if you were in, you know, if your buddy in your, in your platoon had his legs blown off and was screaming in pain, you could give him a bit of morphine and a bit of ketamine to help him deal with that because it's an extremely safe drug. So uh, we've got a lot of evidence of, of ketamine safety and it's a, it's, it's a Schedule 2 drug. We can just use it um, off license to treat depression and other disorders, which is what we're going to be doing in our clinic. But MDMA and psilocybin, they need to be moved to Schedule 2. Now, we're seeing that already internationally. Just... Uh, at the end of last year, Oregon, the whole state of Oregon, basically said magic mushrooms were legal. And uh, it's not going to be very long before American states and maybe Canadian states and maybe the Dutch are going to say MDMA. Well, we're going to make that legal for medical purposes as well because they fulfill a role that other drugs don't fulfill. And the, the reason for keeping them controlled under the UN, the justification was that they didn't have a special role. Well, now we can show they have a special role. That that justification has disappeared. And do you think regulators and organizations such as World Health Organization, uh, NICE, uh, the EMA, do you think they'll be open, open to reviewing these compounds again? Well, they have to because the patients demand it. It's patients that have driven medical cannabis revolution. Uh, it's patients particularly veterans who are pushing hard for MDMA and PTSD. It's uh, depressed patients who are pushing hard for psilocybin. The data will come. In fact, the interesting thing about MDMA and psilocybin is that the data is going to come in a more traditional, structured uh, research way than medical cannabis. Medical cannabis was very much an organic growth from patients, but but companies like Awaken now are, are doing classical research comparing these drugs with placebo understanding the mechanism so so i think it's very likely they these will be registered as medicines you know in in a more traditional way so yes it will be i mean look there are way more dangerous drugs which are medicines than what we're talking about there's heroin and fentanyl so so the reality is once they have a can be proved to have value it will be no government would could justify keeping them uh, as illegal for medical purposes. I mean, recreational issues is a different one, but we don't need to talk about that. No, no, of course. Um, so, uh, yeah, essentially it's a waiting game for the, for the data to start start emerging um, in more of a widespread manner. That is correct. That's right. It's Yes. It, now, you know, and, of course, the illegal status does make it a bit more difficult, more challenging to do the research. But uh, if there's a will, there's a way. And, again, you know, we're hoping that... that um, it, it, the UK could, you know, we are the leaders. We could stay at the forefront if we actually had more encouragement for this research and and, uh, and made made some of the regulations a little bit easier for doctors like me to, to work around or work with. Mm-hmm. Just moving on to, on to Awaken Life Sciences, um, I, I was trying to work out when you joined. I know there was a press release released in, um, I think it was June this year, but then there was a statement a little bit prior to that from you. Yes, I, I was... Yeah, I had started advising them, um, I think, probably around about Christmas, just before Christmas, I started. Um, I mean, I, I was very excited by it, because you know, it's actually, having been part of this study uh, that looked at MDMA for alcoholism with Ben Sessa and Laurie Higbed, you know, we were the team, and we 
that study, we raised the funding, or Ben really raised the funding for that about uh, five years ago, and, and we did it through my research group at Imperial, um, and uh, it was very positive. And because the challenge then is what to do next, and typically, you know, an academic like me would then write a grant. In three years' time, we get funding to pursue it. So when a company like Awaken comes along and says, hey, we got some funding, let's potentially go on and do the next study you need to do now rather than write grants and wait for years, then I was really enthused because I want this to be a medicine. I have seen the transformation it can produce in patients. And, uh, I, you know, the sooner we can get proof that allow other doctors to prescribe, the better. So an Awaken, I think, offer that opportunity. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess that's why that's why you joined. Um, is this the first time you've been involved in, I guess, a biopharma company or biotech um, in the position, in the role you're in now? Yeah, I mean, I, I am supposed that, well, I am, I do chair the Scientific Advisory Board for Compass Pathways, who are doing something very similar with uh, with psilocybin. They've basically taken our depression study and, and rolled it out into a multi-centre dose-finding study internationally. So, yeah, so I have, but this, Awakens the first company that's actually really brought me on board to help properly direct the research. And it's not just the trials. I mean, that's what's really exciting about Awaken is that it's, uh, they want to develop better forms of MDMA and um, potentially better forms of ketamine. And that, from my perspective, is very exciting because there's been no drug development around MDMA. Why not? Because it's illegal. People have Actually, it's been very difficult to work with. Uh, and uh, there's been this sort of idea, you know, that governments, you, the United States, have thought, you know, if we don't research it, people will forget about it. And that's exactly the wrong attitude. We should be saying, well, why, what's so special about MDMA that it's got this therapeutic value in PTSD with maps and our alcoholism with us? And, uh, and Awaken has said, well, why don't you go and see if you can find out why it's different from the other drugs which look like it, which are called amphetamines. And it clearly is different from amphetamines. So, you know, they've allowed me to develop uh, a research program to understand uh, how it works and to build new molecules, patentable molecules that can we can use eventually, I think, to replace it. To be, you know, if they're better than MDMA, then they could become medicines in their own right. Right. And c- could you just, I, I know Awaken has um, a, a pipeline of, of, of research, some of the more short term and um, some, some more long term, but could you just explain to me where the, uh, where the company is at, is at right now in its, um, in its pipeline, please? Yeah, so there are three stages. Uh, the, the Awaken um, research program has three stages. The first stage is trying to maximize the value of ketamine. So we're working, and in fact, Celia Morgan, a professor of psychology, you know, friend and colleague of mine for many years, she's joined Awaken as a scientific advisor too. So she has done, I think, the be- certainly the best study of ketamine in alcoholism that's been done it's called the care study and it's going to be published in the american journal of psychiatry quite soon so she's shown that you can use ketamine to help people reduce their drinking Uh, and it's not just ketamine it's ketamine plus a kind of psychological intervention so so now awaken have um, basically licensed that technology that knowledge from exeter university where um celia is professor so the next question is, can we use ketamine 
to treat behavioral addictions because behavioral addictions of like gambling or, or pornography, they're very, very hard to treat with psychological interventions. So we're now setting up a trial to see if if, you, if ketamine could be a, a more you know, like almost a sort of generic treatment for addictions. Mm-hmm. So that's the first stage, um, and then the second stage is to see if we can take MDMA through what's called a phase two trial, where you compare it with placebo to show to the world that actually the original alcohol trial we did in um, with um, with Ben and Laurie that that holds up if you do it in a proper multi-center, double-blind, placebo-controlled fashion. If that happens, then that'll be a, a, a very big step towards making MDMA a medicine. And then the third stage of the, the third phase of the program, which we've started, but will obviously take longer to come to fruition, is developing alternatives to MDMA, alternatives which will give you potentially a better treatment efficacy in terms of we're looking for shorter acting versions of mdma so perhaps we could do two treatments a day rather than just one at present uh, and uh, and ideally some drugs which are more efficacious than mdma although that, that uh, currently you know we don't quite know how to do that because we haven't un- we don't understand the the pharmacology of mdma as much as we w- should but we're already making real progress into teasing apart what is special about mdma compared with other similar amphetamine like compounds Mm-hmm. And, and you're mentioning things like um, doing it alongside some sort of um, psychological uh, intervention or um, reducing it down to, to twice a day. Um, so how, how would it work really in terms of the patients taking taking these these, med, these medicines? Um, I, I know Awaken, for instance, has clinics. Um, I think you've got three set up in the UK um, for these, type, these types of treatments. Would it be the case of a yes. patient going to them? Yeah, the, so the thing, the clever thing about Awaken is that it's uh, it's not just a research-based company; it's also a care provision company. And so, on the so on the care provision side, we we're setting up these clinics. We've got one that has just been re, 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 effectively rebuilt in Bristol. We're going to set up two in London. So by the end of the year, we will have three clinics, and though we'll be offering ketamine therapy, and there are two. Um, great advantages of having clinics. The first is that they're an income source. So they can fund some of the research I'm talking about with developing new compounds. And the second is that they're a great place to train other doctors and other psychologists in how you do the psychotherapy. So it's really important that your listeners understand that when we're talking about ketamine or MDMA therapy, we're talking about ketamine or MDMA assisted psychotherapy and and this is a this is a really important message these drugs by themselves that may have some impact but their impact is greatly enhanced by doing psychotherapy when you do the treatment and the reason for that is that these drugs break down the ongoing processes that underpin addiction and depression and and they also make the brain more amenable to thinking differently. And it's that new way of thinking which is critical to recovery. And that's where the psychotherapy comes in. So, I I, I mean, from, from that aspect, a patient going into a regular session of, of CBT, you, you're seeing a lot of time it might not work because I, I suppose the patient has to be amenable to it. We have to either want to do it or keep up with you know keep up with the um <clears throat> excuse me the treatment 
Yes, yes. So, um, you know, you know, these, these medicines are essentially just going to help the process along. And would it be typical typical things that we've seen so far from the likes of um, psychiatry, such as CBT? No, no, that's just really important. Thank you for raising it. CBT, many of our patients, well, all of our patients uh, have had CBT. Many of them have had multiple courses of CBT. And so these, these patients are CBT failures. And CBT, you know, is, it's an effective treatment for some people, but it does involve an, a great deal of effort. It involves identifying problems, identifying thinking processes, and then developing evidence to try to undermine those thinking processes. It's, it's, it's very cognitive, it's very intellectual, and it's very hard. And many of our patients say they tried and they failed. And for those, the CBT actually makes them worse because it's a further example. If you can't succeed in lifting your depression or your addiction with CBT, then it's another stress. It's another sign that you're a failure. So the therapy we're using, and, and, and I have to say, no one knows ex- exactly what, what the, the, um, the, the optimal psychotherapy is, <clears throat> but it's much more about getting people to understand why they have problems and then to explore ways in which they could view them differently. And, uh, and uh, quite often it's about dealing with the trauma which has led to people, for instance, becoming an alcoholic. Why did we do the study? Why did we, st- why did we do a study with MDMA in alcoholism? Well, when we know from the work of MAPS that MDMA is being targeted at PTSD. And that was because Ben Sessa, as a child psychiatrist, had seen trauma in childhood. And then he moved to become an addiction psychiatrist. And he saw these children patients, his child, when they grow up, they become alcoholics mm-hmm. because the trauma of their childhood hadn't been dealt with. So the idea then was use MDMA to help people deal with the trauma, process the trauma, get rid of the baggage, the emotional baggage which disrupts their lives and for which they're drinking to try to cope and then reframe their minds with the psychotherapy so that they can can see that they can be different, experience a different way of thinking and and then plan a way out of it. Yeah, I think... um... I, I suppose one of the hardest things for just uh, people going through depression or, or, or you know ad- addiction um, is just that initial step in, into into therapy and, and CBT, and, and then because they're going through so much pressure and stress, trying to deal with that in their own time is you know tremendously difficult. Um, I, ha- I have to ask in in terms of MDMA and um, ketamine, for instance, when using it to treat addiction, it, is there any risk of uh, addictive properties from MD- MDMA and really ketamine. Vital, vital question, vital question. And of course, there is risk from ketamine. We know that ketamine is a drug which is abused by some people. And, you know, there are people who are ketamine dependent. And, and, and they often take a lot of ketamine and they often end up with problems like, you know, serious problems with their bladder. So there is a there is ketamine is an addictive drug. MDMA is not. We've got you know, thirty years now of people using MDMA on a regular basis, maybe once a week, once a month. You don't see MDMA addicts. And I'll come back to why that's why they're different in a minute. I've got some theories there, 
but to deal with the question could could MD, uh, could ketamine treatment lead to dependence and the answer is <clears throat> we think not we're obviously monitoring it we're, we're, you know something we're concerned about because we're only giving three or four treatments over the course of three or four months so if you were giving ketamine every day, then you would run the risk of dependence. But yeah, if you're yeah. just doing it intermittently, it's very unlikely. Now, with the MDMA study, uh, we we looked at this in great detail in the same way as MAPS have. And we're not finding people are going out seeking MDMA after they've had it therapeutically. They get the benefit in a psychotherapeutic session and they've changed. And they're not seeking drugs to solve their problems anymore because they've got their their own mental resources to do that. But we will continue, obviously, to monitor and make sure that, the, that we, people aren't moving in that direction as a result of our, our therapy. Brilliant. Thank you, David. Um, unfortunately, that's just that's bringing us up to the, um, the time we've had. I just want to thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and, and, and talking about Awake and, and your work. Um, I think we could talk for, for, for hours, to, to be honest, in, in this field, but um, unfortunately, we don't have the time. But yeah, David, thank you so much. Been a pleasure, Reese. Been a real pleasure. Thank you. Anytime. Yeah, thank you.